Good morning. My name is Joe. My pronouns are he and him, and it is very good to be here today. So how do you feel about exorcism in Saskatchewan? In case you missed it, Christianity's been in the local news a lot this summer, including some stories that hit pretty close to home. As news of an alleged exorcism at a camp makes headlines, we're trying to better understand the practiced ritual. Tyler Barrow has more on the practice in Saskatchewan and why we don't often hear about them. And a warning, some of the details in this story can be found disturbing. A mother of a camper from Redbury Bible Camp, Heather Wachinski, says her son described an apparent exorcism at the camp during which a kid collapsed and blood was coming from his face. According to her, there was no medical follow-up on the child, going against advice of one of Canada's top doctors. When children are going through issues like this, it's really important to have you know, immediate medical care. Wachinski's partner believes the child was suffering from a seizure. The camp staff member instead saying, no, we saved him. So what exactly is an exorcism? It's designed to deliver, to expel uh, demons from someone who is determined to be demon-possessed. Chestnut says when he heard of this one, it surprised him simply because the denomination running the camp is Mennonite. And when I first saw that, that really surprised me because it's not every day you come across Mennonite exorcisms, particularly ones that, that go bad and make... According to Chestnut, the vast majority of exorcisms performed worldwide wide or by the Pentecostal branch, which place a great emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Boof! He just starts shaking. <laughs> the staff member who allegedly performed the ritual, Carlos Dirksen, appears to speak about the incident in a YouTube video posted in July. Chestnut believes Dirksen comes from the Pentecostal branch. By all his discourse and everything, that he's definitely Pentecostal influence. I'm sure he's not Mennonite. After several attempts to reach the camp, on Thursday afternoon it responded with a statement posted on its website saying, although an isolated incident, it is one that caused pain and upset for the affected campers and their families. For this, we are deeply sorry and recognize that our leadership has to review our policies and procedures, including leader training. That review is now underway, and we know that a stronger, more responsive camp will be the result. Another religious studies professor we spoke with says exorcisms are most likely happening in Saskatchewan, but behind closed doors. Unusual to see this kind of exorcism, these kinds of things happening in Canada, and perhaps why the RCMP are not used to dealing with, with these kinds of, of, of situations. RCMP announced it will not be laying any charges since the incident between the Redbury Bible Camp staff member and child didn't break any laws. Tyler Barrow, CTV News, Saskatoon. Turning now to a tense situation. What do we do with exorcism? The news anchor warned that some of us would find this disturbing. Yeah, that is one word for it. Disgusting, frightening, confusing. There are lots of words. Maybe a bit of shame as well. It's not great to hear Christians, especially Mennonites, being described in those tones. The reporter clearly thinks that the viewing public will find this behavior bizarre and dangerous, if not outright criminal. So do I. Let me be clear. This incident and the embarrassingly weak and defensive response from the camp do not represent my kind of Christianity. And yet, these are our people, 
I've spent a day at Redberry Bible Camp on a field trip with a group of kids from NMCC summer program. The Redberry website says lots of good, familiar things about following Jesus and loving people. Redberry is owned and operated by the Saskatchewan Mennonite Brethren, our cousins in the Anabaptist tradition, our partners in many organizations. We heard about Dirksons and Teesons and Dicks. I bet we would have some family connections in common. And although that university professor from the news seems surprised that Mennonites would be doing exorcisms, I'm not. It's not a common thing. I've never been part of anything like that myself, but I know Mennonite pastors who would be part of those. This topic came up on multiple occasions in my Mennonite high school. You'll find books about demons and spiritual warfare in most Mennonite church libraries. We claim to follow Jesus, and that dude cast out demons like all the time. There are dozens of Bible stories about exorcisms and demonic forces that we could have read this morning and nobody would have batted an eye. This is part of our story. At the very least, it's part of our tradition. And even though I'm speaking disparagingly about this kind of spiritual warfare this morning, I would bet that some of us have had positive experiences with something like this. Some people might even see this as an essential part of faith. What do we do with that? Who am I to say that this camp counselor has it wrong? On what grounds can I say that exorcism is dangerous, that it shouldn't be part of Christian practice? No matter what I say, somebody is going to disagree with me. How do we know what's right and what is wrong, what is true and what is not, what is healthy and helpful, and what is flawed and unreliable? And that's not just about exorcism, that goes far beyond. As Rick said, this is part of our culture these days. The religious word for this, my clicker is still not working, Reg, I don't know if there's anything to be done there. There we go. Is that me or is that uh, you doing, should I be? Okay, I'll say next slide when it's time to move on. We'll see how that works. The religious word for this is orthodoxy. From the Greek ortho, meaning right, true, and straight. And doxa, to think, to accept. Like the orthodox, orthodontist straightens teeth, orthodoxy straightens ideas. Next slide. Orthodoxy means having the right opinion, that which seems right. I like how honest that is. Science has facts and laws. Math has equations and proofs. Even philosophy and history, the humanities have data and logic. Pretty solid stuff. Religion has orthodoxy. This is what we believe to be true. This is what seems right. We can't prove it. It's ultimately a collection of subjective opinions, but we're pretty sure they're the right opinions. Sometimes we're so, so sure that we'll excommunicate and persecute and crusade against those who might dare to disagree. Not a lot of war fought over math and science, but religious conviction is a killer. We will try to hold those things a little bit more loosely around here. Next slide. This fall, we're going to be taking a look at some thoughtful opinions and put forward, that are put forward by Richard Rohr and the Center for Action and Contemplation, which he calls an alternative orthodoxy. On the back of your bulletin, there's the full list, and we will take time, our time going through them over the next several months. Um, you don't get any bonus points for memorizing them, so don't even try. 
Along the way, we will talk about what makes these beliefs alternative and the implication there that traditional orthodoxy might no longer be sufficient. For today, we'll start with that first one and that word orthodoxy, the question, how do we know what we think we know? How do we recognize truth when we see it? That's where the alternative orthodoxy begins. Methodology, scripture as validated by experience and experience as validated by tradition are good scales for one's spiritual worldview. How do we know what is true and right and good? Through the filters of scripture, experience, and tradition. That's the basis of orthodoxy. Next slide. So when someone makes claims that a cabin of 14-year-olds at summer camp is a hive of demonic activity, as Christians, we consider what our Bible has to say about the situation. Of course, that's complicated. Next slide. The camp counselor who initiated the exorcism ritual cited a bunch of Bible verses in his online defense of his behavior. It's Redberry Bible Camp, and they emphasize scripture in their identity in their statements of belief and practice on their website. And there are millions of Christians presently and in church history who have placed the Bible's descriptions and mandates to spiritual warfare at the center of their faith. As I said, exorcism is part of the story of our scriptures. We can't ignore or dismiss that. And yet, it's only part of the story. As Dr. Professor Jeopardy pointed out, the Bible spans 1,500 years of the human story. Next slide. Yet in the first 90% of that 1,500 years, there's only one story about an evil spirit in the Old Testament. There are upwards of 50 references to demonic activity in the New Testament, but why is that 100-year stretch so different from what came before? Was the devil holding back his forces for a couple of millennia, only to empty his bench when Jesus came on the scene? Or was there something particular about that social and cultural and spiritual time, that spiritual imagination of that particular era that spoke through the language of angels and demons to describe realities that they otherwise couldn't make sense of? And while spiritual warfare is a significant theme of parts of scripture, so is friendship, generosity, self-discipline, trust, liberation, unity and equality, economic revolution. How do we choose which scriptures to put at the center of our faith? Which of dozens of biblical worldviews is the right one to emphasize for us? Is it more biblical to frighten teenagers with threats of evil spirits? Or is it more biblical to quiet their fears with peace, patience, gentleness, and self-control? I know which skill set I look for in a camp counselor. As the good doctor professor said, the Bible's not a simple book, and there are significant disagreements on how to read it and what it means. So with apologies to 500 years of good Lutherans, sola scriptura is not realistic. Next slide. We all read and interpret from where we stand through the lens of personal experience. I personally don't have much experience with demons, as I said. Next slide. But there was a time when I believed in an unseen world of angels and demons shaping our, our world from behind the scenes. When I was a teenager, evan evangelical novelist Frank Peretti was one of my favorite authors. He wrote thrilling stories of spiritual warfare, 
powerful angels with shining wings and gleaming swords ranged in epic battles in the sky against demons with dripping talons and leathery wings. While dark and devious college professors did satanic rituals by candlelight and innocent prayer warrior saints held all-night vigils, charging up their angel protectors with their prayers. There's a whole lot to unpack in that series. I had the audiobooks, so I would listen to this as I fell asleep at night, um, create some strange dreams that way. This was evocative stuff for my teenage imagination. I knew it was fiction, but I believed it was presented to me as this was being drawn from some kind of spiritual reality. But as time went on, I never saw any evidence of angels and demons myself. And I learned that there are other explanations for the way the world works. I encountered non-Christian religions that aren't scary or devil worship, but they are full of sincere humans, a lot like me, doing their best to fill their world with meaning. I learned that bizarre behaviors that are best explained through the lens of mental illness rather than demon possession. I read earnest theological assessments of evil that don't need fantastical creatures and super shadowy dimensions to take seriously the destructive forces in the world. So I learned that there are different ways of thinking about these things that some people would use to explain, uh, would, would talk about demons and angels to explain. And when I read about what happened at Redberry, my instincts tell me that something there is wrong. I've seen spiritual leaders manipulate vulnerable people before. I don't trust people who put themselves on a pedestal with self-declared impressive titles, except for Professor Dr. Jeopardy, of course. That guy is legit. I don't know if demons are real or not. I don't need them to be. I trust my skepticism, and I recognize harmful manipulative behavior when I see it. That is my experience. My understanding of scripture flows through that. And that's not enough either. With apologies to Sunday school leaders everywhere, none of us stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Our scriptures come to us through the work of generations. Next slide. Over thousands of years, through the literal translations and the rhetorical teachings of the community of faith. My individual understanding of scripture and my personal experience of faith need the context and confirmation of that wider historical community. If my opinions are legit, they're not going to be too far away from the voices of others. Not that as individuals we can't innovate and grow, but whatever new stuff we come up with, if it's healthy and helpful, it's going to be grounded in the wisdom of what is already known and lived. So as we look back over history, look to that tradition, it's easy to let confirmation bias run the show here. I can easily find someone in the thousands of years of church history who affirms that, that I know they affirm what I'm already thinking. But it is more helpful to draw the circle of tradition wide, to consider, okay, this agrees with me, this does not, this doesn't care at all what I think, those kind of things. The wider that we go, if we consider the diversity of perspectives that people of faith have taken over the years. Next slide. With the exorcism example, sure. As I said, it's easy to find parts of the Christian tradition that understand and practice exorcism very much like what seems to have happened at Redbury Bible Camp. These stories are quite common in churches around the globe and across a pretty broad range of church history. This is part of the story. But again, it's far from the whole story. From the broad view of history and anthropology, 
It's just as obvious that these beliefs and practices are far from a majority experience. Exorcisms are quite rare in church history. It's quite an exceptional experience. And that approach to faith, it comes and goes. It tends to happen in movements, maybe lasting a few years like a wave of revivals, maybe even a generation like the Great Awakening in colonial North America. But then it fades. Culture and doctrine shift towards something else, something more stability, something less sensational. That doesn't mean that it's not valid. It does say that there's something situational about it. This kind of spiritual warfare emphasis works in some cultures and in some times, but it's not the only way to see the world. A belief in exorcism and demons is not essential to Christian's faith. So maybe we should do more to make sure that it's not used to manipulate a cabin full of teenagers. Next slide. So if we want the truth about demons and exorcisms, we examine scripture and experience and tradition. Next slide. When we hold those three in balance, even in tension, that is where we find wisdom. I hope you'll note that I have not actually arrived at any conclusions this morning. I don't actually have to make a final judgment about what happened at Redbury. If I was on the camp board, if I was part of the denominational leadership, or if I was in relationship with any of the teens or adults in the story, then I would need to give more time and attention to the conversation. But for me, really the only judgment that I need to make is to not send my kids to Redbury anytime soon. And that's unfortunate. We were actually looking at camps and Redbury looked like they had some really good stuff going on. There are plenty of people who will decide to send their kids there next year and that's a legitimate place to be as well. For me, through my experience, through all the things that I've explained, this is not the place to be right now. But I pay attention to that. That's, that's my business there. And when I do trust others with spiritual influence on my, on my kids, this story demands that I pay attention, that I get involved, that I ask questions, that I'm open and transparent about my own behavior as a spiritual leader. Those of you with connections to the Shekinah board, you should be asking some questions there and learning some things as well. But mostly, I don't need to reach many conclusions about exorcism and, and demons this morning. There is something going on, whether that's human psychology or an unseen spiritual realm, but whatever it is, it's beyond me. And it's not all that significant to me at the moment. That's okay for me to realize that. Part of this methodology is not saying more than I need to, letting go of what I don't know. Trusting my experience and judgment to say, okay, this, this is something that I need to figure out. This is something that, well, I don't know, and that's okay. By not saying more than I need to, I also make space for others to follow their experience, their voices, and their own interpretations. If this story of exorcisms and Redbury Bible Camp and spiritual warfare matters to where you are, come and talk to me. I would be glad to have that conversation. I'm not dismissing this at all. I'm just saying that I'm okay with the not knowing. That's an all right place for me to be right now. I'm okay with the uncertainty and the incomplete knowledge. That's just an example. For today, the point is that wisdom comes through this interplay of scripture, experience, and tradition. It's a balance. It's a conversation. It's a tension. And it often doesn't arrive at definite conclusions. It's not a perfect circle. There's always more to explore at the edges and in the overlaps. We walk by faith and not by sight. 
I hope this approach to wisdom doesn't feel like a controversial claim. For one, this is pretty orthodox, basic Christian theology, even among Anabaptists and Protestants who have long embraced the, the cry of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Next slide. Different streams of Christianity might draw the diagram a bit differently. They might shift the size of the circles to give emphasis to one of the three. Some would tweak the language a bit, swapping out spirit for experience, church hierarchy for tradition. We Mennonites would probably talk about the language of community instead of tradition. We read and interpret the Bible together. We lift up the voices of everyone who is here. But of course, that quickly expands to the voices of the past, um, other voices that are not here with us. Some traditions might expand the definition of scripture to include other voices beyond the 66 books that are in our Bibles. Next slide. And some might put this whole thing into a box called reason or logical thinking. The most common model um, that you'll hear talked about is called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, and that includes uh, a fourth circle of reason, logic, and right thinking. And of course, the alternative orthodoxy model includes reason as well. It's kind of the cloth on which the, the tapestry is woven. It's all about how do we think. But when Richard Rohr explains this, he intentionally doesn't name reason in this model because in our Western world, logic tends to dominate everything that it touches. Right thinking tends to take over the whole exercise, and it turns faith into this theological puzzle to figure out. We've got to figure out how all the pieces fit together and make, make this whole thing about we have the right answers now. But the point of faith isn't getting ourselves into this completion place, this place where we have the right answers. The point of faith isn't getting things right, but living well. As Rohr says, it's not possible to think ourselves into a new way of living, but we can live ourselves into a new way of thinking. So reason is part of it, but it's not the end game here. Next slide. I also hope this feels familiar because it's pretty much what we, what we do in this space every Sunday. Next slide. We read scripture. We, we tell the stories. We recall the familiar passages, and we explore some of the dusty corners of the Bible. And then, most of the time, a speaker like myself gets up here and talks about the personal connection. We bring our voice to the scripture of the day. A little bit later on, you'll all be invited to share your personal experiences to bring those to the table along with scripture. Next slide. And as I said, we do this together in community, listening to each other, in conversation with those who are present, and bringing in the wider community of songwriters, prayers that are ancient and new, traditional rituals and holy days, a diverse choir of voices every single week. This is, this is just what we do. It's not a magic formula or a strict methodology. It's a balance, a tension, a dance, a harmony, a way of being. Hopefully that leads us to faith and wisdom. So this is the foundation of an alternative orthodoxy. That word alternative indicates that this is new and radical, and it is. Some of the language and ideas that we're going to talk about are going to push us a bit. But really, this is, there isn't anything shocking coming down the pipe. This is mostly stuff that our church has been talking about for a while now. Whatever things do feel new and maybe even radical, I hope that you can see that they are grounded. This is solid. 
This includes where we have been, and it invites us to go further. And that is, of course, the way of Jesus. The tradition is change, all the way back. Next slide. As we read from Scripture, Matthew 13, when Jesus' friends were confused by some of the new things that he was teaching, he explained that to be a student of the realm of heaven is to become like the master artisan who can bring from the storeroom treasures both new and old. Next slide. Faith is like Costco. Words I never thought I would say. You go there thinking you know what you need, but sometimes you come out with a cart full of things that you didn't even know that you needed. I think that's the whole business model. The familiar treasures are there when we need them in our faith. And there is so much more if we dare to look. Next slide. As we consider some alternatives to the systems of right belief and right practice that have long sustained us, know that we're not going off the rails We're not abandoning what we've always known. This isn't a free-for-all. This is the storehouse. We're drawing on the long-standing foundation, the same way of knowing, the same spirit. The source is the same, even as we discover new treasures. Richard Rohr says that this is prayer, the inner dialogue of trust. Rather than clarity, we are invited to curiosity. Rather than sincerity, we are invited to trust. May you find the wisdom that you need this day and the courage and strength to follow in the way of Jesus. Amen.